on this day in 1991, Should I Stay or Should I Go gave Clash their only UK number one single after the track was used for a Levi's ad. The The track was first released in 82 from uh, the Combat Rock album. Very influential band, very influential, uh, contributing to the post-punk and new wave movements that emerged in the wake of punk and employed elements of reggae, dub, funk, ska, rockabilly. And their third album, London Calling, named uh, Rolling Stones a decade after its release, named it the best album of the 1980s. Well, don't know about that, because there were lots of great albums in the 80s, Footloose being one. Um, (laughs) You... Then you're going to get them to meet life soon, aren't you? You laugh, you, you, you laugh but, um, you know, that had a significant cultural impact, you know, with Dancing in the Streets by Shalimar, Let's Hear It From The Boy, Denise Williams, Massive, Alan Parsons Project, Love Over Gold. So, no, you don't agree with that? No, sorry, sorry, no. Are you a Clash no. fan? No, no, not really at all. No, no, but... That amazed me. 1991, this went to number one. But, yeah, uh, all because of advertising. Yeah, 91. What about Goodness you, me. Nikki? You're a Clash fan. You're from, you're from the UK. I tried to be a punk, but my parents wouldn't let me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the whole point of punk, isn't it? You I don't know. worry about your parents. <laughs> I know. I didn't stand up to them. Yeah, I do. I do like the Clash. I don't listen to them anymore, though, I have to be honest. Whatever you think of them, iconic song, isn't it? Oh, just, yeah, no, just, no, no, a, just a riff, and if you are, mm. if you've ever been in a covers band, it's probably in, in, in the top five. You know, ding, 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 ding. you start yeah, learning that first, don't you? Isn't it? A plagal grind, I think they call it. Ah, oh, right. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> uh, you're on the panel on RNZ National. Tim in Autiporti says, uh, "Excuse me, Wallace. The Violent Femmes had some significant albums that are worth remembering, despite a bit of a dearth of memorable music from that." Decade. It's 25 to 5. You are on the panel on RNZ National uh, with best selling author Nikki Pellegrino and professor of chemistry Alan Blackman. And, and textbook author as well. I've got to throw that in. Sheesh. Who you wrote know. the textbook? Me. On what? Chemistry. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> is, it, is it a good read? Oh, it's, it's compelling. All 1,400 pages of it, I tell you. You oh. wrote a textbook. I did. Uh, you I wrote did. a textbook on chemistry, and yet you, you, you couldn't even answer <laughs> on the panel with um, another, go, another chemist, Palm Jepimo. You couldn't even answer for this is the most fundamental of chemistry questions. <laughs> is glass a liquid or a solid? It's a liquid. You prevaricated. Li- I did not. I said it was a liquid. All right. It's a liquid. It's a very solid liquid, though. <laughs> Last week, we looked at how homeowners are looking at the best way to protect their property. Seawalls, for example, are being looked at for those who want to blunt the force of water at the bottom of the cliffs, as an example. Beachlands being uh, one example where several households have applied to fortify the shores with a rock and mortar walls. Sea walls are used around the country and towns and cities. Tamaki Drive, that's a, a 100-year-old seawall. But one group has issued a reminder today, don't sacrifice public access to private property walls. Rick Callanane is Chief Executive of Heringa a Nuku'aotearoa, the Outdoors Access Commission. Rick, kia ora. Uh, kia ora, ora. Public access to the beach, I mean, that's a highly valued prize in a way, isn't it, in New Zealand. What's the concern with some seawalls? 
uh, access anywhere outdoors is a real treasure. Wallace, um, yeah, constructing city walls, uh, need is pretty clear. Um, generally, the access issue is resolved or mitigated during the consent process. Uh, a more common or, or issue that we see a lot of, uh, properties that um, touch on rivers, lakes and even coastal areas, and between the, the private property and, and the riverbank or the beach, um, is some sort of public access strip, marginal strip or esplanade reservable. There's a whole whole bunch of these things. And, um, yeah, we see a lot of cases where people will extend their back garden yeah. um, into that, that, that public land and they'll pop a barbecue table there and, and plant it up in gardens and a spa pool, essentially capturing um, public land and, more importantly, um, places where the public have a right to go. And, um, yeah, it, it can be quite traumatic for those people to um, realise that they're actually on public land. Oh, that's interesting. So there's that issue of just slow uh, encroachment. Uh, let's bring in the panel on this. Nikki? I guess if I lived in a waterfront property, I would be wanting to have a seawall in order to be able to keep my property. So what are those people going to do? What's the solution for them? Yeah, Nikki, the, um, there's a bit of a difference between the coastal environment and the uh, freshwater river and lake environment. Um, yeah, I can understand the issue with um, with coastal seawalls. And generally, the access issues there are mitigated during the consent process. Not always. And like in this business, um, it, it's all about compromise in a lot of cases. It's the, the um, riparian access along rivers and around the edges of lakes because that's where people want to walk or bike. That's the natural place for tracks and trails. And the easiest place to put those tracks and trails are on land where people have an existing right of access. And right in the middle of it, there's a barbecue table and a rose garden <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so that's a sort of separate issue to the to the walls, isn't it? That's just people yeah, encroaching on public land with their own. I mean, I'd just yeah. be sitting down and having a picnic at the barbecue table uh, if it was public land. Well, yeah, most of us are sort of feel uncomfortable if we if we believe we're. Uh, you're not a middle aged woman. We don't feel uncomfortable about that stuff. We just <laughs> we just say out of my way. I'm coming through. No, right. so, so that's a different issue. That to to flood mitigation, isn't it? Okay. Well, let's bring Alan, see what he has to say on this. Yeah, well, you know, again, we were just talking about flood mitigation and prevention and everything earlier on in the uh, show. So, um, you know, if that's going to prevent that, like you were talking out at Muruai and, um, you know, whether that could have helped the people on the cliffs and stuff out there, I, I, I don't know. But um, I do have a question for you, Rick, is how much land is actually public um, on the edge of a lake or a river? What the, uh, Presumably there's a, some sort of measurement that makes it public land, like a couple of metres or something? I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It um, it varies around the country. Um, yeah. Most um, rivers and lakes have some sort of public access strip, either a marginal strip managed by dock or esplanade strips, esplanade reserves, even roads, um, unformed legal roads. Yeah. Um, the problem 
in a lot of cases is that we inherited our legal system from England, which is pretty geologically stable. Here in our rivers are quite dynamic, as we've just experienced, mm-hmm. and they'll often move and, and flood or bury or erode um, fixed existing bits of access. Mm. So it's a bit of a juggle and uh, yeah, takes a while to get a get a consensus with landholders and councils and all the various players. I mean, we work across all land types, council, local government, Department of Conservation, Waka Kotahi, uh, private landholders, Crown Land, Lynns, the, the oh, whole nine yards. Oh, you'd, you'd think it should be fairly straightforward, though. There should just be a set of rules saying, right, you've got this much, which is public land, which yeah. is adjacent to any river, any lake, whatever. End of story. If you encroach on it, you break. Well, the Well, I guess law. it's not, too, because I want one thing to bring up, too, Rick. I guess the scale of some of these seawalls going forward will be another added factor. They'll be fortified for the future, so they won't be atomic drives. They'll be very large constructions. Yes, and I yes, they will. And, um, you know, that's something else we have to work about. I had, had to have a chuckle about that comment about what would be nice if it was straightforward. When our organisation started about 13 years ago, I offered a prize of a chocolate fish for the first, um, you know, uh, one of our operations people to come up with a straightforward case. And as time went on, that increased to a, um, a really nice bottle of wine and then top of the line scotch. And I don't know where it is, but I think I could probably put anything on it and be guaranteed it would be safe. <laughs> Straightforward is not us. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, th- <laughs> thank you for um, highlighting this issue, Rick. Kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's uh, Rick Cullinan there, Chief Executive of Heringa Anuku Aotearoa, the Outdoor Access Commission. But uh, as you say, Nikki, if you had a home on the beachfront, you would naturally you'd try anything at all that. costs to save it, would you not? It's a natural response. Mm. I don't have a home on the seafront, no. but yeah, if I did... Um, Give it yeah. a few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, wonderful feedback coming through, and uh, this uh, this one here, um, the, what do you call a person from Christchurch? They just keep on going. And here's one, no such thing as an ototahi, and that's a mix of Māori and English. Can't do it, don't do it. Says toe, just saying. Love the program, which is a uh, mm. absolutely fair point yep. there. Yep. Um, Wallace, the Clash were a global phenomenon. They still have a huge following. Their music is iconic, and they were a forerunner of the world music that came out of them in the nineties. Regards, says Michael in Wellington. Yep. And just a couple of nice pieces for you, Alan. Alan is the best lecturer, and is a first year at Otago. <laughs> Love the cartoon strips in his lectures. And Rachel says. Tell Alan that I love the podcast he did on chemistry with RNZ, Elemental. It was fab. I have, a, I have re-listened to it <laughs> and have listened to parts of it with my daughter, who's at high school, enjoys it. Oh, So well, there you go. Oh, that's I very didn't kind. Know you, Thank did you. you do a podcast with RNZ? A 98-part podcast. Where can I find it? On rnz.co.nz. <laughs> <laughs> 98 parts. 98 parts. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I should have looked that up first, huh? <laughs> um, yes, uh, it is 16 to 5, the panel with, uh, as you heard there, Alan Blackman, Nikki Pellegrino. Now, clubs. This is interesting. I didn't know this. Clubs in New Zealand will have to make changes if they want to keep their incorporated status. The legislation hasn't been updated since 1908. 
115 years. But change has come. Incorporated Societies Act 2022 is replacing the old legislation. And clubs have until April 2026 to re-register their club under the new Act. This reported by Nona Paltier from RNZ. To find out what all this means, we have Clubs NZ Chief Executive Larry Graham with me on the show. Larry, lovely to have you on. Thanks for having me on. I went down the rabbit hole this afternoon looking on your website, and boy, oh boy, there's a lot of clubs in New Zealand, aren't there? <laughs> well, there is, and now uh, under our umbrella, we have uh, about 315 clubs and 300,000 financial members. So we're, we've wow. been under the radar for a long time, and we like that, but all of a sudden, bureaucracy has kicked us out of our hole, and we now have to <laughs> dance on broken glass. 300,000 members, and no one's ever heard of you, and here you are on the panel. Uh, it's just amazing. But then I got to thinking, because I thought about this so much, hang on. Clubs are people's lives, Larry. You know, be it your local stamp collecting club, be it your Boy Scouts girl guides, be it your local cosy club. Yep. Yeah, well, we mostly look after those clubs that uh, uh, have a uh, sale and supply of alcohol uh, licence, uh, a class four gaming licence. So, you know, we're the place where people go down the road to their local club and have a beer, have a punt and have a meal with their kids. So uh, we're, we're sort of uh, community-based. Organisations, Lions. pretty much, pretty much. Well, that's another club again. You know, there are thousands of clubs. We look after a hospital oh arm of them. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. Nicky. So, what kind of things are they going to have to think about yeah. that perhaps they weren't worried about before? Well, um, well, they're going to have to worry about if they don't actually re-register before the time frames, they will not have a licence, and there will be all sorts of problems with that. So we're trying to go through that process to help them through that step. And it's a very important piece of work for our industry because we can no, no longer rely on sort of good manners. And as I said before, our business is under the microscope. But, you know, um, there's a whole raft of things, really. Uh, the, you know, the, the alcohol stuff is really, really uh, uh, um, uh, tough. Uh, and and uh, we have to um, comply with all those rules, and that's fair enough. We don't have an issue with that. But um, they talk about us being a non-profit. Well, there's no such thing as non-profit. We have to make it good, otherwise we won't be won't be viable. But we're also probably the last bastion for community organisation where someone can wander down the club and you don't have to drink. You can have a game of cards and you can have a coffee. Yes. And, you know, we're talking about some clubs that have got 60 members and we've got some clubs that have got 9,000, 10,000 members. Lifeblood. So huge... Yeah, very Lifeblood of Aotearoa. And can I just, before Alan jumps in, can I just put a uh, acknowledgement to the tens of thousands, perhaps, of volunteers who organise and are part of these um, uh, clubs' activities? They run them. Yeah. Yeah, look, dead right. And we, we have a lot of those. You know, you talked about the Lions before. We have a lot of uh, uh, those uh, uh, organisations use our facilities for their meetings. And we're happy for that. And so we are absolutely a community hub. And today I was in Rapparoa, you know, four people and seven cows live there. And, and it's awesome. <laughs> fantastic people, you know. And, um, 
So we are all over the place, and we love that part of the job. But, geez, it's getting hard out there. Yeah, four people, seven cows, not easy. All right, Shout Alan. out to yeah. my mate Andrew Rogers, who comes from Reparoa. He's a teacher up at St <laughs> Peter's. So, um, so I play lawn bowls, and so therefore I'm a member of a bowling club, and I oh, okay. realise just how much work goes into yep. these things. And, um, oh, you know, you've got all of this bureau- – you're, you're right, you've got all this bureaucracy that you have to worry about, you know, everything from employing people to health and safety to alcohol sales, pokies, etc., etc., etc. And reading up on this, I see that you are proposing um, a model constitution for clubs, which sounds to me like a really, really good idea so that everyone's sort of singing from the same hymn book. Um, the thing with bowling clubs is that <laughs> often they tend to be run by, let's say, retired accountants or people who, you know, know their way around um, figures and stuff like that. So we generally do pretty okay with all of that sort of regulatory stuff and financial stuff. But, you know, I, mean, I imagine if you're starting a club from scratch, um, it would be yep. a daunting yep. prospect to um, have to comply yes. with all of these things. So, yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. I had a phone call from a guy this afternoon that's from a, uh, a yachting pub. And uh, he just said we wouldn't know where to start. Yeah, and a lot of these people are going are, are going out and getting legal advice. Well, that's you know the, even even dare I say yeah. well the lawyers themselves have to learn about incorporations and stuff. There are very few lawyers out there that understand it. Mm. And so the reason for us bringing this together with a draft is making sure we cover off all of those issues that generally a club has. Now, you're probably unaware that there are different types of clubs. You have clubs that have Queen's Charters. You have clubs that have friendly societies, Mm. although 90% of our clubs are incorporated societies. So all of that stuff to consider. We want to produce something that they can just plagiarise, put their name in there, maybe add a few rules for their for their clubs. We have a few gentlemen's mm. clubs and, and so on. So they, their rules might be slightly different, but this is generally about making sure we don't break the law. What a minefield. Interesting. Nikki, I didn't ask you. So Alan's part of a bowling club. Um, what clubs do you belong to? You know, I don't belong to any, and I'm no. wondering if that is actually remiss of me. So yes. I might, there's a really nice bowling club around the there corner. There is, yes. I might yes. join. I need yep. to join a club. That was yeah. just that was Jacinda's old club. She used to go drinking down there on, on occasion. Yeah. What club should I belong to? Oh, what would you Block want to do? House, Blockhouse Bay Bowls, Bowls. obviously. Oh, you've got to be serious. Oh, come on. You'll love it. Good fun. <laughs> Larry, <laughs> you endorse that? Blockhouse Bay Bowls for me? <laughs> Oh well, look. I'm sure we we might. You might even be a member. You need to ask your people. We have 58 registered financial members, bowling clubs. So and 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 I, just because you touched on something which is important to us, probably one of our best kept secrets is we run about 55 national or island uh, sports tournaments, 17 different sports. So oh. we're pretty well involved in the community and and generally. The sports, this is know, so interesting, are, Larry. Um, we will have to get you back on because this is just a big, big, big topic, isn't it? For now, mm. though, Clubs NZ Chief Executive Larry Graham there. Um, uh, law untouched for 115 years. Good piece by Nona Peltier there. And uh, bowls, me joining a bowling club, let's think about it for 24 hours. But the 115-year-old the thing that you bring up there, I think that's really interesting. Does anybody out there know what the oldest piece of legislation on the books in New Zealand is? Because No, I haven't got a clue, but that seems to be an awful long time for a piece of legislation. Good panel topic. Good yeah, panel topic. We're we not go. able to go to. Uh, now, uh, just an update on the uh, cricket, by the way. Black Caps versus Sri Lanka. First uh, test in Christchurch, day one. Um, uh, New Zealand, by the way, won the toss, elected to bowl, and Sri Lanka, 214 
for three. Ooh. It's eight to five on the panel. Lovely to have your company. It really is this afternoon on Thursday afternoon. Now to this. Imagine you've splashed out on some handcrafted upmarket confectionery only to find the another brand just covered in chocolate. That's what Levin-based confectionery company Potter Brothers have been accused of by great Kiwi bake-off artist Courtney Adele, reported by the spin-off. We reached out to them for comment today and offered a right reply. No comment as of yet, no response. But to discuss the legality around this, and by the way, we're not saying it is the case, but that's what people are saying. We have Kate Duckworth, an IP lawyer and director of Kate Duckworth Intellectual Property Limited. Kate, welcome. Hi, Wallace. Thank you very much for having me on your show. And hi to Nikki and Ellen. Pleasure. So I haven't had the pleasure of uh, tasting the chocolate. Many people just swear by it, but some say, hey, hang on. It feels like it's a pineapple lump dipped in chocolate. What do you think of this story? Well, trick or treat, isn't it? People don't like being lied to. It doesn't, I think, it had a great story to tell, Potter Brothers, handmade in New Zealand, handcrafted. And I've met these guys. They go around and door knock and offer you some of the chocolates and then you buy them and it's got a really good feel to it. But if it is true that that they aren't fully handcrafted or handmade, that they're popping uh, their own chocolate around a, a pineapple lump or so on, then they run the risk of uh, falling foul of the Commerce Commission because it would be a breach of the Fair Trading Act because and, it's misleading and deceptive. And uh, not saying they are, but that's uh, what people, some people are, are saying and uh, we have offered a response to the Potter Brothers. Kate, have you tried the chocolate? No, I haven't. I have. It's not very nice. <laughs> I think I didn't have pineapple lump. I think it was probably nut cluster, and I was <laughs> underwhelmed and did not purchase again. <laughs> yeah, Say well, it I... like it is, Nikki. Goodness <laughs> gracious me! Um, so, so essentially, it's really great marketing because I was suckered in. I thought, oh, because I love chocolate. I thought, oh, this looks good. It looks a bit fancy. I'm going to treat myself. Um, how does the Fair Trading Act approach? Surely, you can make your product look fancier than it really is. Fair trading can't do anything about that. No, well, that's, they talk about things like puffery, which is really the aim of marketing, isn't it? Uh, so they, the claim is really to do with whether it is handmade or handcrafted, not that you're not as fancy as, as uh, you think you are. <laughs> and I think in some ways, you know, this reminds me of what my parents would have said to me as a teenager, you know, we're not mad. We just disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, no, no. I, I want to ask you this: Are we all getting a bit sort of um, a, a bit too sort of um, um, strict on this? And by the way, the Commerce Commission has received a complaint about uh, Potter Brothers chocolate. Just to you know, but look, if I take as uh, it was mentioned, if I take a bar of wood, if I take a peanut slab, right, I. Melt it down. I put it in a new uh, gel, maybe uh, as a, uh, a different a different shape, and I put hundreds and thousands on it and some frozen berries, and I call it um, uh, Chapman's Treat. Couple, <laughs> oh, that's, that's yeah, that could amazing. sell. It yeah, doesn't, but, it does. but doesn't it? Wow. Is, is that my chocolate and is it handmade? Well, it, de- it depends what what claim you make. I think it it would still be handmade. And that's probably not so you go. much the problem because you've melted it down. You see, there you go. It's my chocolate. It's my 
it's my my mm. my brand it's intellectual property but what does handmade mean made. i mean does it involve the use of the hands necessarily you know that cuz my you know my my idea of handmade means you know each each of these is individually bloody i don't know you know chocolate sprayed all over it or something like that by hand not a machine by hand and that's the problem with food labeling isn't it uh huh the labels drive me crazy that say made from local and imported ingredients. Mm, mm. Well, is, is, is the local, you know, one drop of water. <laughs> yeah, fair point. This has <laughs> happened in the fashion industry as well, because recently the designer Adrian Hellwood was um, accused of buying dresses cheap from oh, Alibaba yes. and selling yep, them yep. a considerably bigger profit um, online. And yeah, so it seems to be a bit of a, this repurposing of things for profit seems to be a bit of a thing. Surely we all we have to do is to ask the makers of pineapple lumps whether they're getting any big orders from Levin. You know, problem solved. Well, that's a question, question. answer. Well, no, no. It had, they, they, um, um, the, the reporters have, uh, the journalists working on it have asked, uh, and there's been a bit of a silence around this, but we do um, really offer uh, the Potter brothers to come on the panel and discuss. So what would you recommend they do, Kate? Oh, I, I think they, they have to you know, sell, sell their good story and, and put things right um, because they, they, they're good, hard-working blokes who mm. uh, you know, tried to get this product out there. So I think they need to, the, as I said at the beginning, the public don't like being lied to. We don't like being tricked. So you know, right. if that's right, then, then tell the story correctly um, as, as it is. And even better... Make your own from scratch. People like that. Nice one. Make your own from scratch. (laughs) Wonderful way to end the show there, Kate uh, Duckworth, IP lawyer. Bit of clash. I asked for Footloose, but they Ben Brad played the clash. Alan Blackman, (laughs) Nikki Pellegrino, wonderful stuff. I am back tomorrow, Friday, 3.45. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen is next. Should I stay or should I go?